The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world, the earth sees and trembles, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices and all the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let me start with a a quick prayer. Father, thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself. Help us to respond to you rightly this morning. May we leave here with something more to believe and something to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for having me today. You're in your summer series looking at royal psalms, I'm told. And today you're in Psalm 97. I don't know how you've... uh, looked at these psalms before, but they're referred to as enthronement psalms. They focus on God's eternal kingship. See that if you look down at verse 1, there's a declaration that the Lord reigns. And they've got such an important place in the book of Psalms, otherwise known as the Psalter. Nothing to do with what you have at lunch. But the Psalter has these books in it, and we're in book 4, which is Psalms 90 to 106. And what it's doing is it's addressing what was like a crisis point for God's people. A crisis created when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and took all its people away, deported them in 587 BC. So questions were in people's minds about God's goodness, about God's promises to his people, if he could be trusted. And that's the section of the Psalms we're in today. And so relevant for us in this world now, isn't it? Can God's promises still be trusted? Does he still rule and reign when we look at the world around us? Can we still have hope in him? And you know, the the book just before uh, this section of the Psalms, book three, that's Psalm 73 to 89, they sort of relate in a really painful way these doubts about God's power and provision. But comes Psalm 97. And it shows us wonderfully that God is still in control, that he is still most high over all the earth. I wonder if that's what you believe this morning. I'm just going to give a really quick overview of the psalm and then we're going to look at just two short points today. 
Now this psalm's got three parts. I think we, we start, if you look down, I think it's on page 603. Keep your Bibles open. You see verses 1 to 5, it makes this big claim that the Lord is king. The Lord reigns. And then it goes on to describe all these amazing displays of his power. In fact, we even see there's an invitation to all creation, the earth, even to the distant shores, to join in this. God is the God of all the earth. Then secondly, we see in verses 6 to 9, there's a response of creation to God. We see in verse 6 that the heavens, all people, see God's glory. And yet, look at verse 7. It suggests that some people don't recognize him as king. They worship other gods, gods, if you like, with a small g. And they're shamed as idolaters. But we see in contrast, don't they, the rejoicing of the people of God of Zion and Judah. And we'll come back to more of that later. And then lastly, the third section we see towards the end, verses 10 to 12. What does God's rule look like, his kingship look like? Well, it looks like trusting in him. The righteous in the psalm sort of point towards this idea of humbly acknowledging God, living before him and making him your refuge. And so there's this call to rejoice and praise him. I wonder what you're rejoicing in, what's giving you joy this morning. As we see in verse 1, the Lord reigns. But his reign is one that's shown in verse 2 to be characterised by righteousness and justice. They are, as it says, the foundations of his throne. I remember watching a film some years ago and it opened with a line that said, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But that's not the case with God. You see, his kingdom is not only about great power, but about the exercise of that power rightly. Well, my two short points this morning. Firstly, God gives revelation. God gives revelation. And you know, that revelation has an eternal effect upon those who take it seriously. Maybe you once heard something and it really impacted your life. Well, that's the case with God's revelation. It has an impact, but an eternal impact. And it reveals who we are and what we're really living for. It sort of drives us, this psalm, to see that the reality of God ruling and reigning has an impact on our lives both now and into eternity. Now, I don't know if you uh, went down to London for the coronation, but if King Charles was to walk in here and visit us today, we would acknowledge him and his status would be demonstrated by our response to him, wouldn't it? By our recognition of him as king. Maybe some of us uh, today are anti-monarchists, but essentially... King Charles' rule as our king would be demonstrated by our reaction, wouldn't it? He's a temporal, mortal king, but he's king of this nation, sort of in that official legal sense. Well, back in our passage, the nature of God as king, of his rule in our lives, is also revealed by how we respond to him, how we respond to his revelation. Now, verse 1, if you look down, it says, Rejoice and be glad. At this truth that God is king. But then isn't it strange that the revelation that follows seems quite frightening. Clouds and thick darkness. Fire going before him and consuming his foes on every side. His lightning lighting up the world. The earth sees and trembles. 
The mountains melt like wax before him. This picture builds up of of thick darkness, of impenetrable darkness. So thick, it can be almost felt. I wonder if you've ever been stuck in a very dark room or on a very dark night. Darkness can be quite terrifying. But it goes on, there's this sense of, of terrifying consuming, of consuming fire, of his consuming of his enemies. That they melt before him. Think of an ice cube before a furnace. They melt before him before these awesome demonstrations of his power as creator. You see, as human beings, all our our sort of refuges that we make, all our our man-made attempts to make foundations for ourselves, they sort of dissolve before God. All, All our idols dissolve before him. God reveals himself as king and the earth sees and trembles. There's a frightening sense of God's power seen in creation. Now, it's true that we know from science something about how some of these things happen. But it doesn't make them any less awesome or frightening. Think of the awe inspired from a lightning storm. Uh, The great fire and molten ash that pours out of an exploding volcano. These are awesome revelations of the awesome creator God. And they are a continuing way that God speaks to us. As C.S. Lewis wrote, they're they're God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We think we know so much as humans, don't we, with all our, our knowledge and technology. But a simple storm exposes how fragile we really are. I remember when a trip to Texas that I had planned was suddenly cancelled due to a hurricane. You see, God's revelation is shown in such awesome and severe ways here in this psalm. But they helpfully remind us of our humble place in his world as his fragile creatures. As the great John Calvin has written in his commentary on this psalm, a cloudy sky overawes us more than a clear one. But what does this fearful outward display reveal about the king behind it all? Well, it reveals his supremacy, that his rule extends everywhere and to everyone. Look at verse 4. The earth sees and trembles, the whole earth. And there's no escape from this reality. We are creatures that live in a created world that's ruled by its creator. And you know, the history of Israel proved God's power and supremacy over and over again. Think of how God acted in the past. Before this psalm was written, how he'd acted in Exodus through the Red Sea. How at Mount Sinai, the mountain flamed as an earthquake prepared his coming. And these were special revelations for God's covenant people in the Old Testament. But you know, a day is coming when he will reveal his supremacy to everyone. Now the psalmist says here in verse 2 that despite God's awesome revelation, this thick darkness, this fire, that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And as verse 6 goes on, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. 
You see, although God's throne is, is somewhat hidden, wonderfully, it doesn't hide a cruel and unkind or unpredictable God. We know from God's revelation that He is a good God who can be trusted. But so many gods of the world are not like this. These gods with a small G. Just think of how across the the centuries and millennia and even still today, so many people are trapped in in some belief in, in a God or in gods that they're endlessly trying to appease, to sacrifice to, to, to seek the approval of, to strive after. Of course, such false gods bring people down, don't they? Down to despair. Think of the gods of the ancient world, how they sort of played games with humanity, the stories about them, the Greek and Roman gods, how they treated people almost as playthings. Now, yes, of course, of course it's all, all nonsense. We know that. They're not real, but they nonetheless were what people believed in. People were held by that all their lives. And so many are still today by false gods. And yet God rules righteously with justice. That's why, as the psalm says, the earth is glad and rejoices. It means evil matters to God, but it won't go unpunished. He sees it. You know, that, that desire you have for justice in the world, after reading another awful news headline, it's a good God-given desire. I've heard of this term come up called doom scrolling, where, where the news can feel so bad that it feels like it's just doom and gloom. But, but you know, the reason we have that response, that it isn't right, is because we yearn for something greater. And that's a God-given desire, that desire for things to be put right. And in his kindness and patience, God has not yet fully put things right. He's not yet fully consumed his foes on every side. Yes, as we look out at the world and see the way it functions and operates, yes, he hasn't yet put all idol worshippers to shame. But one day he will. And that sense deep within that we, we so often have for things to be put right in the world, it will then actually be applied to our lives and to each of us as well. There will be a day when God will be seen to reign And he will show his reign in fire and light and burning glory. So is your view of God big enough to accommodate this revelation, his revelation? Not just what you would like God to be, or the bits of his words you perhaps prefer, but can it hold all of it? Is your God the one who has revealed himself in his creation and in his word? Or is he a small God of your own making? See, I hope that you want to rejoice, as the earth does in this psalm, over God's righteousness and justice. Because I think deep down we know it's how things should be. Think of how many empires have sought to stamp out God and his people. Think of the hostility of the world towards God's own son, Jesus. Think of the Roman Empire throwing Christians to the lions or burning them alive. Think of the communist regimes of the 20th century that sought to silence Christian faith and are still trying to do today. Yet they've all been in vain 
all totally futile attempts by mortal man to defeat the immortal God. So yes, evil does pervade this world now as we look out and see society and the way the world seems to be heading. But a day is coming when it will be brought under the justice of God, the God who is a consuming fire. See, God has revealed himself, and one day he will reveal himself as king fully. But given that coming, given that coming reality, that given that day, the question for us is how will we respond to this revelation? God's given revelation. So we must respond. Second point, we must respond. You see, our response to God's revelation, it, it exposes where we're heading, our destiny. Look at verse 6. There's a day coming when all people will see God's glory. Yet in the psalm, we, we see two opposite reactions. Some are going to be shamed, while others will rejoice. Those who put their confidence in, in nothing, in emptiness, in idols, they'll despair on that day. Their false gods are not real now and will be no more real then. I think some people think they don't worship anything, but the writer G.K. Testerson said, you know, we, we don't walk around with open mouths. They're designed to shut down on something at some point. And we all have a worldview. We all worship something. question is do we worship the true God or false gods in fact if you see in verse 7 it is a metaphor but even these false gods are told to worship the true one so you see whatever we worship will put us to shame if we don't worship the Lord and despair at the, at the revelation of God that reveals our heart where our hearts are at See, as the Bible says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So how do you feel about meeting this God? How do you feel about that this morning? Because we will all meet him one day. We all have an unavoidable appointment with him. And today, if the thought of that fills you with despair, it exposes what you're worshipping, what you have confidence in. You see, look at verse 7. Such a person, what do they boast in? They don't, they don't boast in, in God. They boast in idols. Now look, by, by our nature, we, we all sort of do it, don't we? We don't likely worship a carved stone or a wooden image, but we do worship things. Often more subtle than physical things. It, it's things like prosperity and pleasure and entertainment and success in career or relationships. Or always being right. Think about your life. What consumes your thoughts and passions and energies this morning? What makes you wake up in the morning? Where do you direct your life's energy? Is it about sort of fulfilling your life goals and being controlling in the driving seats? Gaining increasing respect and kudos? Maybe it's all about the family. Your business, your, your pension, your retirement plan. 
Now look, these things aren't wrong in and of themselves if we hold them with open hands. But they can begin to consume us if we begin to put our confidence in them. And if we do, we'll find that ultimately they don't offer life. You see, if that resonates with you today, if you've begun to have confidence in those things, they'll never satisfy your deepest longings. You weren't made that way. And they won't provide for you in eternity. As the early church father, Augustine, wrote, O God, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, your false gods, as shiny and novel and as exciting or as meaningful and as appealing as they may appear to be, they will finally leave you despairing. In our natural state, in our, in our fallen nature, we worship such things. In fact, as social media has sort of exposed and then exacerbated, we even worship ourselves. For all the riches, all the power, all the followers, all the, all, all the likes in the world, it won't count on that day when God comes to judge. See, before God, our idols then will just crumble and dissolve. And our relationship to him, to him as the ruler of the world, will be the only determining factor on that day. So if you're despairing at the thought of meeting him this morning, it's, it's probably because you're not yet in a right relationship with him. So of the two responses, that's the first one, shame, despair. But the second response, look down, verses 8 to 12, is delight. Well, why is that? The key's there in verse 8. We read there, it's the, it's the Lord's people, his covenant people who rejoice in the glad. Look down at the verse, it says, Zion hears and rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. There at the end of verse 8, you'll see, and a number of other times throughout the psalm, God's name of Lord is printed in capital letters. That's the translation from Hebrew of, of the word for God given in the Old Testament, Yahweh, Jehovah. It's that relational family name of God. So it makes sense, doesn't it, that those who are delighted, they're excited and joyful at God's coming, are the ones who are in the family, who call him by the family name. So if you're in a right relationship with God today, then you can know that God makes and keeps his promises, just as he always has. And therefore, looking down the track to that day when you will meet him, it'll be the greatest joy of your life. See, Zion was the, the temple mountain where God's presence among his people sort of symbolically dwelt. So the people were able to say in verse 9, look down, that God was exalted far above all gods because there's only one most high who is the Lord. And that's the ongoing confidence that Christians can have. He still is and always will be the only one most high who is the Lord. And yet, isn't it striking that the greatest joy 
that's shown in the psalm of the Lord's people is in what? In his judgments. That the king is righteous in all his judgments. I don't know if you watched the Ashes series recently, um, but we have these sort of third umpires these days, don't we? It's something that was instituted in my sport of, of squash. We have them called, uh, they're called the video referee. I think in football they're called the VAR, aren't they? If there's ever a question mark over any decision that's been made, the video referee can be consulted. And they then give the final decision. And they give it with authority. And we see in our psalm what God, who is, if you like, the, the ultimate umpire, the ultimate judge, possessing a final authority, will decide upon. What will his judgments be? Well, as much as consuming his foes and shaming idolaters, in verse 10, he's also going to guard the lives of his faithful ones, deliver them from the hand of the wicked, shine lights upon the righteous. This is how God shows his hand, how he governs his world. And when you're in a right relationship with the king, this is your reality. You get to experience his hand upon your life, directing you, leading and protecting you. So if you're a Christian this morning, I hope that's a great joy to know that. That God guards your life. He delivers you from evil. He brings light to your path. He's made that eternal commitment to you. He's made a covenant to you. We can rejoice in that. I don't know if you've seen the film Covenant, the Guy Ritchie film with Jake Gyllenhaal and He's wounded in the field in Afghanistan and his interpreter makes a commitment. Whatever it takes to get him back to base, to get him back to safety. That sense of covenant undergirds the film. But at a far deeper level, we're trusting God this morning. He's made a covenant to us, an eternal covenant. And you know, because as we see in verse 1, God reigns, the Lord reigns. That looks in our daily lives like we can trust him in all circumstances. We can trust that he's working everything for our ultimate good. So we can have joy even when life is difficult because we know he's working, he's guarding our souls. He's providing all that we really need, protecting us, delivering us from the wicked. Nothing, you see, can finally separate you from God, or defeat his purposes for your life. He sheds light on our paths. He he reveals more and more of himself to us as we see more of his goodness shown to us. And there's blessings we have now that will be fulfilled in eternity. These are really things to delight in, to be joyful about, to know that the Lord reigns, he's the king. As much as the world seems to say the opposite, that's not the case. The Lord reigns. And so no wonder, given all this, the response is there of verse 8, that the Lord's people rejoice and are glad. Now maybe you're sitting here this morning because someone asked you to come along and all you're thinking about is coffee and biscuits and then lunch and an afternoon of leisure. And if that's you, then... 
then fine, you're free to ignore God and live out your days as you please. But you will have a final accounting before your creator. And I hope and pray that none here today will meet God then and be shamed by him. I hope then that we'll all be rejoicing and glad at his judgments. Maybe on the other hand though, you're here today thinking, yes, I've been coming along for a while, thinking about this, I, I want this. I want to know God as a family member from the inside. But I know deep down that I, I'm not verse 11, I'm not righteous and upright in heart. So how can I come in? How can I be part of his people? Well, it's a great question to be asking. Now we know from the New Testament that John wrote of having seen God's glory in Jesus Christ. We read that as Jesus turned water into wine at Cana, he revealed his glory. And then on the cross and through the resurrection, the glory of God was shown. God's glory is fully revealed in his son Jesus. And it's precisely because we're not naturally righteous and upright in heart that we need someone who has the power to make us so. One who can gift us a perfect righteousness. One who can change our hearts within so that we do want to smash our idols and worship God alone. So that we do want to do away with those small g gods. But we can't do it ourselves. We're powerless to do so. But wonderfully, Jesus can. He has the power. So how do we come in? How do we become part of God's people? Well, we turn and follow him. We live by faith in him. We trust in Christ. And as we become people of faith, who know God as our Lord, we can then call him by that family name. But we need to be serious about it. Just look at verse 10. We need to love the Lord and hate evil. We need to come under what Calvin called the government of God. Forget about sometimes changing in temporal earthly governments. We need to come under the final government of God. For as Calvin goes on, we cannot be judged to be God's servants unless we depart from sin and pursue holiness. So it's an ongoing response to God as Lord that shows who his real people are. As we live in faith and trust in him, we become his people. Just as those who live in idolatry become idolaters. You see, our response to God's revelation, to who he's shown himself to be, that exposes our destiny, where we're heading. So if you're trusting in the Lord and following him today, then you can really do verse 12. Look down as we close. You can rejoice in the Lord. You who, now in Christ, are righteous. And you can praise his holy name. We no longer need to live in despair. If we've turned to God in his mercy, he's given us a new and eternal life. So rejoice in who God is. Live in the light of him as the royal ruler. For the Lord reigns.
Let the earth be glad. Rejoice and praise his holy name. Amen.